sometimes it's just spontaneous. I just stood up at uh, Ellen Road on me and that, and I never even thought about it in my head. I just said tune, did it again, and the whole United end just joined in, and it just became a song. I'm Jim Salverson, and welcome to Football Stories, a podcast that seeks to tell some of the more interesting tales from the beautiful game. Whilst football focuses on the big, the big matches, the big names, the big sponsorships, we're focusing on maybe the names you're not quite so familiar with on this podcast, but certainly stories you're going to want to hear and stories you'll recognise as well. Today is a name that I think you probably won't have heard of, but you will 100% have heard his work at some point. I'm chatting to Chief Manchester United songwriter and superfan Pete Boyle. If you've ever wondered how and why a terrace chant gets started, well, it's people like Pete who not only have the creativity to turn well-known pop songs into football-friendly stuff that's sung on terraces, but also they've got the cojones to get up in front of their fellow fans and start singing them in a crowd. On this podcast, I talked to Pete about his charting albums. He's actually released albums of football chants. His friendship with some of Manchester United's legends, including Eric the King Cantona. And of course, we chat about his favourite songs that are sung at Old Trafford too. But be warned, we did have a few technical issues on this call. So the audio in places isn't as great as maybe I would have liked it to be. But you know what? It's such a great chat. I still wanted to put it out as a podcast because it is well worth a listen. And Pete is a top storyteller. Pete Boyle is the songwriter. Good morning to you, Jim. So I've heard you called many things down the years, Pete, most of them complimentary. Uh, super fan, songwriter, terrace bard. I think my favourite was Manchester United's most famous non-famous fan, which I think sums it up quite nicely. What's your personal favourite description that you've heard of yourself? I once heard myself described as the uh, Burnage backer. I know that uh, the great broadcaster Adrian Childs was also very... Uh, he really was amused by that. And uh, Adrian's uh, championed me a bit down the years. He's a, he's a really nice guy. He's a genuine football fan. But I like to think that I was I was, I was was renowned, shall we say, you know, uh, long before the age of social media. And I'm still here. So it's uh, something to be proud of, really. Definitely. You've clearly always been a bit of a fan of words. And that's obviously taken you to where you are in terms of being the man who writes a lot of the Manchester United songs. But for some, it takes a lifetime to come, become a published writer. But for you, it happened at the age of eight. Yeah, I don't know where it came from, the actual, uh, you know, it must be in your family somewhere, but my parents certainly weren't uh, wordsmiths of any nature. But I just realised that I've, uh, I've got a, a very good uh, memory for, for statistics, if it's to do with football or, or bands and, and like, you know, chart positions or games and results, and also for, for the penny like lyrics. I always used to think that if I could have met my Johnny Marr, I could have been, you know, I could have been, it could have been a great partnership with my words because I don't write music, but I could give me any music, I can put words to it, you know, that's why football songs traditionally you adapt sort of well-known songs or hymns. And at the age of eight, I always remember, so I just wanted to have my, my work published and I wrote a poem to the Manchester Evening News. It was like the Junior Post bag it was called. I even remember the photographer was called Eric Graham and he came and took one of those stereotype 70s photographs of me with a pair of football boots tied round the, round my neck, you know, as you sort of dangling around, like Billy's boots, the old cartoon character. And I wrote a poem, uh, and it was, I'm football crazy, I'm football mad, 
I support Man United. I go to watch them with my dad. I like Old Trafford. I like Main Road for two. Goodison Park and Anfield. Don't you? And uh, yeah, so that was my first uh, foray into publishing. Do you remember when you started becoming that obsessive with football? Because clearly at the age of eight, you're keen enough to write a poem. Do you remember where it started just being a passing interest and turning into an obsession? Well, I was very lucky because a lot of people my age, if the, if the parents weren't into football, and obviously it had a bit of a bad reputation because of the hooligan element in the 70s, and passive fans would say, well, I'm not taking my kid there, they have darts thrown over and all that. And my dad took me at a very early age, and was, uh, my dad was a Sunday League referee, but he also loved United, and he took me to Old Trafford when I was four years old in 1974. And the first I don't know much, everything about the game, I looked back into it, I knew we won against Aston Villa, but I've looked back into it since, and a couple of interesting points, Arnie Sidebottom, who was a footballer for United in the 70s, but he was also a well-known cricketer, and you'd probably be aware his, his son is an even more well-known cricketer called Ryan Sidebottom. So not many people of my age could say they saw Arnie Sidebottom play for United, but also, when I've done a bit of research, it was on the 16th of November 1974, that game, which, of course, if you know any red anoraks out there, will know that was the very day that Paul Scholes was born. So I'm at Old Trafford for my first game, and a few miles up the road in Oldham, Paul Scholes are being born. You know, my dad started taking me a few times after that. I remember in 1976, United got to the cup final um, for the first time since 1963. And my dad thought I was deemed that I was too young to go to Wembley. Mm. So he took my mum. How the hell he took my mum, I do not know, yeah? <laughs> and uh, it was the last cup final that the Queen ever attended. And United, red hot favourites, against second division Southampton. And of course, United lost. And after the game, my dad being very angry and bad mood, and my mum was saying, can we wait to see the Queen? And my dad snatched her hand and dragged her out of Wembley. And my mum was saying, well done to the Southampton fans. And my dad was really snarling, you know. But 12 months later, Tommy Doherty went, uh, kept his promise. When he said it, he said at the homecoming, when we lost the final, we'll be back next year to the fans, we'll be back, which was quite a bold statement because in those days, not many teams got to cup finals in you know consecutive seasons. And uh, in 77, my dad took me to quite a few of the cup games. He took me to the Cube Queen's Park Rangers game at Old Trafford, replay against Southampton, who we played in, in the FA Cup again that season. We beat him uh, 2 1. And then he took me to the quarter final against Aston Villa and he took me to Hillsborough every day after my seventh birthday and we beat Leeds 2 uh, 1, another funny result. And then he took me to Wembley for the final. So for someone who didn't turn seven till April 77, I went to quite a few games that season. And the FA Cup final in 77 is one of my. I don't remember the whole game. I remember the goals. I remember the fans outside tying all the scarves together and climbing up the big steep walls and fans pulling other fans into the ground. So the, the attendance was 100,000 officially. There was a lot more there. It's quite a funny moment, actually, because after the game, at Wembley, I, I, it's bizarre how I can remember such vague, such things. I don't remember big elements of my life, but I remember after the game, my dad took me into a pub somewhere in London and it was full of United fans celebrating. And because I was a, a young kid, someone put me on the shoulders and I was and I was on the, in a pub full of United fans singing on someone's shoulders. And, you know, maybe that's somewhat down the line that maybe got me involved in it. And I, I always remember the landlord of the pub was saying, getting down to knocking the chandeliers and all that. You know, it's a great memory, really, you know, look back. So I was lucky that that took me. And then maybe that's what got me obsessive. But uh, not long after that, I remember always like, you know, when, when I was, you know, eight or nine years old, you know, my mum and dad would hear me in my room and I'd be, I'd be, I'd be doing my own commentary in my bedroom, you know. And uh, I can always remember, without even looking, I can always remember the team from Wembley that day and it was 
Stepney, Nicol, Alberston, McElroy, Brian Greenoff, Buchan, Coppel, Jimmy Greenoff, Pearson, Macari, Hill, and the substitute there, McCreary. And I, you can mention teams in 99, the treble. I, I could slip up on loads of teams from this season, last season. I'll never forget that team. That, that was my team, my idolised, and probably my favourite ever United team, to be fair. It must be weird for you then, because I know through the years you've had a bond with many of the ex-players or current players that have been in the squad. You even got a happy birth from one of the true United legends, Eric Cantona. And that, that line-up that you mentioned, I know that you've, you've, you've been friends with members of that team. So eight-year-old Pete must be pinching himself in these moments. Yeah, I mean, I remember my dad, my dad there passed away nine years ago, but I remember him once and, uh, you know, that sort of, sort of like, you know, I was doing the, an event in Ireland with, uh, with Sammy Mack and Lou McCary and Alfred Alverson and my dad like grinning a little bit really, you know, because when you think about it, when I was behind the goal at Wembley that day and, uh, yeah, literally about six or seven of those members of that team, you know, I've, I, I sort of know and I judge some of them as friends and we've done, we've done some events together down the years and we, we keep in touch with each other really, so... I don't take anything for granted, you know. I mean, I am just a fan. I don't try and have a pretend I'm more than a fan. But it is quite surreal sometimes when you said I got the message off Eric. And, you know, if I meet a player, whether it's like an up-and-coming player who's like 19, you know, or who's just in the team, or if I meet a legend and you know my name, I'm still buzzing. I, I keep it together nowadays, quite cool. <laughs> but deep down, it's the real buzz. But I remember the first uh, probably half a dozen times that, Sir Alex Ferguson or Eric sort of spoke to me and called me Pete or Peter. I was like, I was like uh, that 16-year-old lad on a date with a girl he really fancies, you know. I was going all broken biscuits, you know, and Fergie goes, I need a Peter. And I go, yeah, 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 hello, hello. <laughs> and Eric goes, hello, Pete. And I go, hey, yeah, yeah, And I try and be cool, like, you know, and uh, I think I remember once when we did the Looking for Eric film, which uh, with Eric Cantona, I was one of the extras in there and I got invited to the launch party and I took a friend of mine along and, and Eric introduced me to his, uh, his, his wife, his second wife, like, and I was chewing away, like, you know, and, uh, and sh sh shook around and all that. And when I went away, my mate said, what are you chewing? I said, I'm not chewing. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I thought it looked cool. He went, you idiot, you know what I mean? I'm pretending <laughs> to chew thinking it looked cool to Eric and his wife, you know what I mean? I didn't even have any chewing on him around. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, Peter, my friend. Happy birthday to you. Obviously, you've written these songs for these players that you've gone on to meet potentially further down the line. Has anyone ever kind of taken you to task and gone, I wasn't that keen on that tune that you came up with? Not really. I mean, we, me and Gary Neville used to have a bit of banter because uh, a couple of reasons, really. Because the, the old image of Gary Neville and, and his hate scousers wife, is, uh, it's really been fabricated because it started not in a song initially. What it was, in 1990. Eight, I think it was, I interviewed Gary Neville for the United fanzine, Red Issue, the, the long run of the United fanzine at the time. And uh, in the context of the interview, Gary had said he'd grown up watching United and Liverpool were winning everything when he was a child. Mm. So the terminology he was using was he hates Liverpool because of the success they had, like, like all fans of my generation and Gary's generation did. So he wasn't having a go, in as much as some United fans are likely to think, he wasn't having a go at the people of Liverpool, you know, across the board. He was talking about, as a football fan, you know, he doesn't like Liverpool because of that. And it was an interview for the fans, but there was a, a so-called journalist from one of the uh, tabloid rags 
who plagiarised it completely. And on the, a few weeks later, after the, after the article had come out in the fanzine, the interview, one of the tabloids had a, had a headline with Gary Neville, I Hate Scousers, and it quoted a couple of lines, as you, know, as you often do, out of context. So it read really like, I hate Scousers. And the fact was the journalist, so-called journalist, he didn't even credit the fanzine on herself. He sort of quoted the, as if it was an interview with him to Gary Neville. Anyway, I assured Gary that I hadn't, you know, sold it onto him or anything. And like, I, in the end, I ended up even getting a solicitor to get, a, you know, an apology from the, the newspaper that they'd taken it without permission. Even though Gary hadn't doubted me, I didn't want him to think that I'd just sold this thing on. People just remember the original article. However, in uh, April 1999, we played uh, Leeds away. It was a few days after we just beat Juventus to get to the European Cup final. And sometimes when you're trying to get a song going in the game, you can try too hard. You can, you can prepare too much. You can give out songs. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it's just spontaneous. And uh, what I did, I just stood up at uh, Ellen Road and I went, Gary Neville is a red, is a red, is a red. Gary Neville is a red. He hates scousers on me own like that. <laughs> and I never even thought about it in my head. I just said the tune. And then I did it again. And the whole United then just joined in and it just became a song. Gary Neville is a red, is a red, is a red. Gary Neville is a red, is a red, is a red. Gary Neville is a red. Because of that and the interview, Gary's always got a lot of grief off Liverpool. You know, a lot of it tongue-in-cheek, but... And he, so Gary did once pull me up about, you know, you've, you've got all the scouts on my back, Pete. But, you know, it's, he knows it's all in good taste, really. But it's what makes him a United legend as well, isn't it? It's part of his status as a United fan, is that kind of way to rile the opposition. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's added a bit of fuel to the fire down the years, hasn't he, when he ran up celebrated yeah. at Old Trafford that time towards Liverpool and end up getting fined for it. And he's, uh, he has a bit of banter on, uh, obviously, on social media with his, with his colleague, Mr Carragher. But like I said, the initial thing was, he was just sort of like bemoaning Liverpool, growing up as a, growing up with Liverpool, winning everything, really. But uh, I've not really had any real opposition to any of the songs. I think Dwight York used to laugh at a lot of the songs. I mean, you know, I don't write, not every, not every single song United fans write has ever been written by me. I've written hundreds of songs, yeah. but... I do try and be more positive with my, with my songs. I try and be more positive and not look at things derogatory about our own player. You know, it just seems to be, there's enough people who write derogatory songs about our, about United players. I don't really think we need to have United fans writing songs, sort of mocking them as well, you know. But uh, I'm sure there's some players who probably thought that wasn't very flattering, but I've never, had any, I've never had any direct feedback saying you don't like a song. I mean, obviously the bond you've had with players from many different generations I know you've told stories about Alex Stepney and Brian McClare and talking about Gary Neville and Eric Cantona there. There's many different incarnations of the Manchester United team there. Does that carry on into the current playing squad? I think not, not so much really. I mean, I've been very lucky to meet a lot of the current players, like, you know, but uh, I suppose it's a different era, really. I mean, up until the 90s, players still went out socially more. There was more exclusive sort of bars, but players would go out. For example, United used to always go out on the Christmas party in just normal pubs in Manchester, like they should start off in Mulligans and go on a bit of a pub crawl with a little bit of security. Yeah, I had a call a couple of times that United were going to be in this bar, not necessarily off the team, but I got tipped off, like, you know, and I've been there and had a great moment at the end of the season uh, just before we won the treble. We just won the league uh, on the Sunday, and I used to work on King Street West, not far from above where San Carlo restaurant is. And I had a tip that United players were going to be mulligan, so I nipped in there 
And what really happened on them was a surreal moment, which Andy Cole mentioned me in his book. Basically, all the United team were there and uh, they were trying to catch me out and get me to do songs. And David May was there. <laughs> I was making so- you know, I was singing songs like the players. I had Michael doing air guitar and Neville was saying, give us the best song, give us the best song, give us this one. And they were trying to catch me out. They were saying, give us a song for Mark Wilson, one for Jonathan Green. And I just made them up <laughs> on the spot. I'm quite good at that. And I was there for a few hours. It got to the stage where, you know, it was just a surreal night, you know, being in a pub full of, you know, the United team that was that did the treble and they were sending security to the bar to get me drinks. And I was just sat there singing United songs and it doesn't get much better than that, really. But I have met a lot of the current players. Uh, like I said, they're all, you know, and the, the nice guys. But I suppose I've just thought I'm, I'm a bit older. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really know where any, trend, where any trendy bars in Manchester were nowadays. Do you remember the very first song you wrote? Like I say, you've written hundreds, you said, of Manchester United Terrace chants. Do you remember the very first one? Uh, I probably don't, really, because for a long time, I used to write the songs of the day, really. I, I used to start the old traditional songs off at United Fans Sing when I was very young. And the first album I had out was Songs from the Battle, which the songs I had on that, were probably about I've written a couple of them two or three years before, but I released that one about 1993, 94. Well, I probably wrote a song when I was about 15, 16, a couple of chants, which I, I've sort of like added verses to it. And one was to the tune of Dirty Old Town. It's called Whenever I See Man United Play, and it, it is you know it's it's really about growing up in the in the in the 70s and watching United. And I eventually recorded it. I, I think I wrote the first verses to it when I was probably about 16, 17, maybe. And then I didn't record it till, till about 1994. And I added some more verses to it. And it's, it's a great song. And it, you know, people often think that song is, a, is an Irish song. But of course, Dirty Old Town was wrote by Ewan McCall, Kirsten McCall's dad. And it's about Salford, which is obviously uh, United Heartland as well. The first verse and the, and the last verse, the fewest of you. First saw the Reds in days long gone by. Team was grand and the fans, oh my. So proud back then as I am today, whenever I see Man United play. Then it goes on about the different areas of United. It sort of finishes about 94. That was probably one of the first ones that I remember writing, but I mean, ones that take off for particular was sort of like songs like for Lee Sharp and for Eric Cantona, really. And, you know, going back down the line, I mean, one of my favourite songs I've probably ever written was probably the song for John O'Shea. People often think that's based on the animals marching two by two. Well, it was actually based on English Civil War, the, uh, the class song, which was based on when Johnny Goes Marching Home chant, which you're probably aware of. John O'Shea actually loved that song as well. And it was funny, really, because one of the lines in the song is, we all know that Johnny's going to score. Now, he didn't really score that many good goals, so it's poetic license, really, wasn't it, for that song? What's it like getting a song going, then, when you come up with something new? Because... I've tried out football matches and for a lot of football fans it is the worst feeling in the world where you go I'm going to start a chant and then absolutely no one joins in even your mates around you they completely hang you out to dry I mean there's even a song that other fans will sing to you when that happens when you start singing a song and no one joins in so there must be a fear factor I think there is for a lot of people I mean and I, I always remember in 99 we were playing away at Charlton Athletic and I went down there with the intention because the week before United had beat Liverpool uh, in the FA Cup and we were getting beat 1-0 with about two minutes to go and Dwight York equalised. And when we were thinking about the replay, Ollie got a soldier scored. And I went to the pub in Charlton Athletic away with the intention of getting a song going to feeling hot, hot, hot. And it was, 
Olay, 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 olay. Gonna solve shaft, gonna solve shaft. But all my mates who came down with me deliberately to wire me up, they kept singing Nicky Butt, 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 Nicky Butt, Butt, Butt in the pub. So the song didn't take up, wasn't taking off. Again, a bit like the Gary Neville in, uh, song, how uh, that started off. Without any sort of like, without even planning it at all, just top of my head, sporadically, I just burst into in the pub. Who put the ball in the Scouser's net? Who put the ball in the Scouser's net? Who put the ball in the Scouser's net? Oh, they gonna Solskjaer. And you know what? The whole pub erupted, gets into the game, everyone was singing it. And by the next week, the whole, it was the United Anthem. Now, little did we know that a few months later, we'd have to, that song would get changed again. So who put the ball in the Germans' net? Mm. Oh, they gonna Solskjaer, yeah? To a lot of people, going back to the original question, there's so many people who've, always, who've wanted to start a song they look around and they want to do it and sit they have a few drinks to get the courage up. But when they stand up and if no one joins in, like you said, the world, they want the world to swallow them up, put their heads in the hands. But I never felt like that. I just used to make me more determined. I just make myself more determined. And I've had great instances at Old Trafford where I've stood up to try and sing a song. I'm halfway through singing it and my voice is gone because I've been singing in the pub for the game. And I've gone, Aah! And the whole ground, the whole section of the ground has all started laughing and cheering. Because my voices give up on me. I said, I, I just don't get embarrassed. People, mate, one of my best mates said, people get embarrassed for me, but I don't get embarrassed. So it is, it's just the determination. And I, you know, I've always thought, you know, I just think that, you know, when I was a kid, one of the things that grew, grew my love for United was women going to watch United. I was in the strap with my dad and I sat on the, used to sit on the fence at the front holding onto the bars. My dad used to stand behind and I was sat on the front wall with my kids and I'd look round and I'd see all the colour, the bar scarves and the, the blokes with denim jackets with all the patches sewn on with the Feet United patches and the noise and the fervour and the ticket, the bus, the bus they used to steal ticket rolls off the bus buses and throw them on like people used to think they were toilet rolls but it was ticket rolls, they went further and I was just amazed by the, by the noise and the different variety of songs and I, I, I've been at many games as a kid and my dad used to go, son, turn around and watch the game but I, I was always obsessed with the singing side of it and I, I, that, that, that's just always been in, in me really and because of that I always thought I try and make my songs as original as I can. You know, you do often, you can switch on a game. You can watch football amongst all the divisions and you can hear certain chants. Like I remember a few years ago, you used to have that chant that, you know, the England band, and I really can't stand bands at football matches. And then insert the team there, you know, England, Villa, you know, Chelmsford, whoever. And I used to think, if I'm a fan of a club and I can hear every other, I can hear all these different teams singing exactly the same song, I was cringe. It's like that when Liverpool fans started singing that Olay song, which they copied off some European teams. And then literally, half the clubs in the country's fans copied it, you know, and I thought, why would you do that? Why don't you just try to think? Now, you can't help it if you're a set of fans and other people copy your song. That's flattery in a way. And I'm not saying it's never happened at United, but, but it doesn't make them proud. I mean, I, I don't personally copy other teams' songs knowingly, but some Sets of fans have no shame, you know. Did the start, you know, you know, United started singing the Ollies at the Wheel to, to Waterfall by the Roses, and then you look up and all these other teams are doing it at Norwich and all that. And I think to myself, don't get me wrong, Jim, there's always been generic songs, you know, there's always been glory, glory, or when the Reds, or when the Blues, or when the Saints, there's always been We Shall Not Be Moved, you know. K Sarah Sarah was a United song originally in 1976. Every obviously, then it became an anthem for every team on the way to a cup final. But somewhere on the line, I just think it's you need a bit of originality, and some clubs haven't got any of that at all. And I try and be more original with the songs, you know, and other United fans do. 
But I just sometimes I just I just I just shake my head. I, you know, do we really need to sing another song to the tune of Nemanja? Whoa, Diego. Whoa. We've always recycled songs every like every maybe every couple of eras. But some people now are trying to copy a song from like the season before. And maybe I'm just the old generation, but I like to think I've been a bit original down the years. The latest news about your team. The biggest stories from your terraces. The most exciting moments from your week. Forget the clickbaits and listen to real fans bringing you real news every single day from the Premier League. Listen and subscribe now wherever you find your podcasts by searching Football Social Daily. Do you think it's a little bit of a dying art then, kind of the creation of these terrorist songs? Because you're right, they do get regenerated. I remember West Ham fans getting very upset a little while ago because the You Are My Payette song that they sung for Payette was being recycled by other clubs and replaced with players' names. So do you think that kind of originality is maybe is maybe disappearing a little bit? I was actually cringing for, for my own set of fans a few years ago because West Ham actually had a song for Christian Daly, you'll be aware of it, years ago. Oh, Christian Daly, you know, you're the love of my life and all that. And it was copied by Arsenal, which Arsenal fans have got terrible form for having a very bad songbook, you know. And Arsenal copied it for Freddie Lundberg. That was bad enough. But then some United fans in Moscow in 2008 copied it for Owen Hargreaves. And I said, well, what are we copying it for? And it became very well popular at United. And some people then go, oh, you're just saying because it's not your song. And I say, it's nothing to do with that. I'll sing any song that's not my song if it's original. But I said the fact that it's a West Ham song originally and it was word for word copied by Arsenal and then word for word copied by some United fans. And I think, <laughs> come on, let's have a bit more originality. You know, West Ham haven't had that many songs down the years, but I remember Chelsea copied, you know, the Joe Cole song, didn't they, that West Ham fans had sung. I remember hearing West Ham Old Trafford and they didn't sing many different songs. And he sang the Joe Cole song when he was first at West Ham. And I thought, bloody hell, that's a bit unusual. That's a really good song now, you know. We had a few songs for G-Sun Park, but one of them was Don't Sell My Park with G-Sun Park. I just don't think you'll understand because if you sell my park with G-Sun Park, he's going to write a book like Yap's Down and then we change it to going to write on your hands, right? Now, that was a United song. And then a couple of years later, Cardiff copied it with about Malky Mackay and they literally claimed it as their own. And that's the tune you might be referring to. Loads of clubs have used that song since, haven't they? You know what I mean? It's always going to be songs that people, you know, the tune's going to be used, course the years, but... I just think that that was a bit of a low point for me when United fans sang the uh, Owen Hargreaves one, purely because it was just another team song and he just substituted the words, you know. It has been dying out a bit, but we're quite lucky at United uh, in some ways because we're most critical of our own fan base. And I'd love to live in an era where you don't, you know, I don't don't like clubs having, you know, giving out free flags at grounds. It it, It looks tacky, it's not natural, it's just, you know, you used to have clubs like West Brom giving out with big foam hands for kids and all that. I'm not against kids doing something like that, but, you know, proper atmospheres are like, just fans make their own banners, fans sing their own songs, right? You know, and an atmosphere to me, when people are on about, oh, what a great atmosphere at Anfield, when they're playing over the Talloy, a song, and everyone's holding the scarves up for the TV, that's not an atmosphere. An atmosphere is about when you're singing your own songs during a game, not, not, not when you're singing along to a Talloy at the start of a game and waving a few plastic flags and that, but... United fans got criticised for for setting up like a, a so-called singing section and it's evolved really the last two seasons. The atmosphere at home games has been really, really good because of that. A group called uh, TRA, the Red Army, and a lot of those lads and, uh, and lasses meet up in Manchester before games. Sometimes they march to the games, but they meet up in Manchester and they have a good sing-song. 
And yeah, they're bringing out more original, they're bringing out more original songs. And I think that without something like that, I think the new generation of original songs and taking off at games is going to come to an end. And I think that although people criticise what United are doing, if you look along the grounds, these, most of the big clubs are trying to do things similar. They're trying to get sections where like-minded fans can come and do it. So whilst everyone criticises United fans for doing it initially, other clubs are following suit. One of your songs that you probably never thought would be repurposed by the team that repurposed it is... This is how it feels to be City, which was sung to the tune of his borough carpets, This is how it feels, which finishes with the line, This is how it feels when your club wins nothing at all. Now, given the success of Manchester City over the last few years, I guess that one feels a little bit bittersweet for you, but also it's quite strange that it's been adopted by a lot of City fans and kind of used in an ironic way. Yeah, you've got to give, some, give credit for that, but uh, there's a line mocking Phil Jones in there as well, isn't it? But you know, there would probably be a day when City will actually win the European Cup, but at the moment, you know, we can, we've still got another, uh, another song of our streets to the same tune. <laughs> the last line is, this is how it feels when your passport's back in the drawer, back in the drawer. <laughs> the City still keep on, fa- at the moment, it's still falling at the final hurdle. But yeah, I mean, when I first recorded that song, you know, my mate was tour manager, he's a tour manager for several big bands, and he was tour managing for the Inspiral Carpets, and he, t- and he, he took the Inspiral Carpets into a hotel room in Newcastle for the start of the tour. And he played it to him, and I said, "Don't play it." So he might sue me, but they were they were laughing about it, you know. Yeah, it's it's a it's a form of flattery, I suppose, if a song gets used back against you. You've recorded a load of these songs now as officially released albums. Is it five albums you've got under your belt now? No, it's more than that. It's, I, mean, I ended up releasing ten out and out albums. I used to write them in the bath originally, so I had uh, songs from the bathtub. You know, we sing one. That was the one, of course, which uh, the famous Terry Hall from the Specials put in his top ten favorite albums, number seven of that was. And then I re- the second one released. I was uh, Bathtub Revisited. Then it was uh, you get the, you get in the general gist. Then it was from Beyond the Shower Curtain. <laughs> then it was Chanting Boozy in a Jacuzzi. That was number four, and they were all on cassette only. And then I, I jumped a little bit further to uh, 2003. I moved on to the, uh, the CD age, probably when everyone else was getting into downloads at that stage. And I released uh, Peach Plug Old Pleasers. And I'm doing these off memory, by the way. Then it was uh, B-Day Drawn Boyle, which was a play on Badly Drawn Boyle. He's a big like City fan. But he's a decent guy, uh, Damon. Yeah, and we have a bit of banter on their social media together. And then I think it was uh, Boyle Unplugged, How Low Can We Sink? And I'm struggling out, I'm running out of titles here for, for, to do with bathrooms. And the last album we released was called Cisterns of Mercy. So Cisterns, as in like, as in a bathroom, Cisterns, C-I-S-T, of Mercy. So it looks like Sisters of Mercy. And that was, uh, I've also had contributions on a couple of other compilation albums, like Cantonar album, and uh, which was, the Cantonar album came out in 1995. And, uh, it was reviewed by a journalist called Johnny Cigarettes in the enemy. And around that time, you had Morning Glory came out and got something like seven out of 10, maybe six out of 10. I think Different Class by Pulp got eight out of 10. Great Escape by Blur got nine out of 10. But Cantona, the album on Exotica Records, got 10 out of 10. <laughs> and Johnny Cigarettes, who by pure luck, I didn't know him at the time, he's called Johnny Sharp, but he's, he's pen the name with Johnny Cigarettes. And he, he did a review and he said, Meanwhile, Pete Boyle provides excruciating rhymes. And somewhere in there is a compliment, isn't there? Yeah? 
the, the album got 10 out of 10 in, uh, in NME in 1995. I dare say that the other albums, uh, aforementioned albums, got considerably more sales. <laughs> However, but that, yeah, that, that was, uh, I had a few songs, I had a few tracks on that album and we, we appeared on The Big Breakfast with Gabby Roslin and Mark Little on the day that Eric was in court and uh, we went down to London. There was some quite rock and roll moments, really. When I look back down the years, it's, uh, it's been quite, quite a journey, really. I mean, this would have been the early 90s when you were recording this music, which is very different to, or certainly the first albums, very different to how you record albums now, where you can stick a microphone and a laptop in your front room and away you go. You well, that was part of the fill originally. Because remember, we recorded the first album and I looked around for studios and it was like Yellow Pages, whatever, looking around. And there was a studio in, in Manchester and it was just off Back Piccadilly. It was called, it's, it's on Tariff Street and there was a bar above it and it was called Spirit Studios. Now, Spirit Studios, the Smiths recorded some early demos there. And do you remember the song Insanity by Oceanic? Take me into insanity, big, big pop song for the 90s. Yeah. That was recorded yeah. there. But basically, the only time I could afford it to hire the studio out, because it was something to do with like Manchester School of Music, it was like from 11 o'clock at night on a Tuesday night. Now, who wants to go to a studio? So I rung around a few of the lads at the time. Do you want to come and record a tape of United songs? Bring a few cans. And we're going to go to this studio on Tuesday night. They've all got work in the morning, yeah? And we went to Spirit Studios and we recorded it with the uh, the Peril at the Peak in Manchester. The landlady's son, Morris, used to play the accordion. And we all had a few drinks. And we went down into the studio and the first tape. That's who would just say that Morris had had a bit too much to drink. And he was knocking microphones over, so we had to send him. We had to send him home in a taxi halfway through the recording. But also, what we hadn't planned for was there was a bar upstairs called Ten Bar, Tower Street, and that had like a bit of a house night, which started about twelve o'clock. On the second half of the recording, on side two of the tape, you can hear a bit of a bit of a fudding dance floor above, because that was the night from above. And we recorded it, and the the guy in the uh, the studio producer, or whatever. It was unreal, unheard of to hear somebody obviously recording football songs. And he was used to these bands who take themselves seriously. And when we had like, play it back and you could hear a couple of people coughing and talk, I go down and he'd go, we better do that again. I went, no, that's perfect. That's how I want it. You know, and he was going, what? There's a lot of love for those albums. And as you say, they've been mentioned in various articles and various charts through the years. I think my favourite, I guess, nod to their success came from Alastair Campbell, who was one of the players involved. I think it was the original Soccer Aid. And I believe he invited you to write songs for all the players that were involved in Soccer Aid for the world team. And it was a year that Diego Maradona was in the squad. And I hear he was quite moved by the tune that you actually wrote for him. It was. Uh, I can't actually remember what, what, which one I actually wrote for Diego at the time. But <laughs> Alice has got it in his book, hasn't he? Alice used to text me on a daily basis and say, I've just been singing your songs to all the players and Gordon Ramsay loved it and uh, Poirier loved it and uh, we can't wait to sing this one about Robbie Williams, you know. We had joy, we had fun, we had put Robbie on his bum and uh, things like that. So uh, it, it, it was quite surreal, really, because, I mean, I've been used down the years to, to ligging it with some sort of people in, you know, some of the United greats and with some people in uh, quite famous bands. But that was one of the surreal moments when Alistair invited me to the uh, Larry Hotel. I was in a room and uh, Gordon Ramsay and Poirier and everyone came over to me shaking my hand like, you know what I mean? Thanks for the songs. What do you say to Gordon Ramsay when he shakes your hand and says, thanks for the songs, you know what I mean? I was waiting for him to start swearing at me, but he didn't. <laughs> Pete, I could talk to you all day about your songs and Manchester United, but we're running out of time, sadly. So I think it's fitting that 
I ask you what your favourite song is, and I'm sure all your chants that you've come up with are like your children, and it's an impossible question to answer. But do you have one that stands out head and shoulders above the rest? As far as recordings go, it's probably the, the, when Johnny goes marching down the wing, it's the full version with the band, because it's, like, uh, it's very much based on like, the, the clash, and it sounds really, really rock and roll. And, but it's only really obviously the chorus that has ever taken off at the game. But when you go back to like September last year when I was in Norway and I was presenting a couple of events with Eric Cantona, you know, as the guest. And at the end of the event, the 300 people in the room burst into Eric the King to the tune of Lily the Pink, of course. And, uh, and I get up on the stage, in, you know, like not, I wasn't uh, actually going to always intend to do this at the end because I was, I was in my shirt, I was in my, my smart casual clothes like Alan Partridge doing me, doing my comparing. <laughs> but I burst into, I did Eric the King, all the verses about Eric's career at United. And as I'm, you know, as I'm looking around, and Eric and his two brothers are clopping along, sing, you know, singing the chorus in his own song. So, and I think that the fact that, you know, virtually every game, home or away, at some stage in the pub before the game, if not in the game, people will still sing about Eric Cantona and the Cantona songs that I've done. If ever there was going to be a song on the, on the, on the, on the grave, it'd probably be something about Pete, who wrote the Cantona songs, you know what I mean? So I think really, I mean, my favourite Ever United song is Proud of All Europe and all songs from the 70s, but the Cantona songs will always be synonymous with my United songwriting. Pete, it's been a joy to speak to you. Really appreciate you spending your time chatting on the podcast today. And let's hope that pretty soon we get the fans back into stadiums and singing your songs at Old Trafford in the near future. Thanks very much, Jim. Enjoyed that. Take care. One of my favourites in this series, that that is Pete Boyle, the songwriter. You can find more from Pete and his albums and other stuff relating to his work over on his website, peteboyle.co.uk. If you're a Manchester United fan, I also suggest you check out Sports Social's daily Premier League podcast. That is called Football Social Daily. There's always a fair chunk of Manchester United chat in those podcasts. What's the saying, isn't it? Hated, adored, but never ignored. Well, that applies to football social daily when it's talking about Manchester United as well and it's also the only daily Premier League podcast so by proxy it's also the most up-to-date podcast you can find search football social daily wherever you listen to podcasts click subscribe to that and click subscribe to this podcast as well so you get the rest of this series and season two when it's available in the new year thanks for listening we'll see you next time Football Stories is a sports social production and part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hosted and produced by Jim Salverson with additional production support and imaging from Ant McGinley. Find more great shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.